In this episode, we're talking with Martin North from Digital Finance Analytics. We're going to explore housing affordability in the light of a return to rising interest rates. Who is hurting the most? And what role is migration playing in the property market? Where are all those new immigrants moving to and how many of them are buying property? We'll also discover creative ways in which some Australians are seeking to alleviate the pain of housing affordability pressures without missing out on joining the party. Welcome to The Elephant in the Room. This is the podcast where we love to talk about the big things in property that never usually get talked about. I'm Veronica Morgan, real estate agent, buyer's agent and buyer's agent mentor, co-host of Foxtel's Location, Location, Location Australia, author of Auction Ready and co-host of Your First Home Buyer Guide. And I'm Chris Bates, mortgage broker, recently ranked number five in Australia out of over 18,000 brokers in the annual MPA Top 100 Mortgage Broker Awards. Before we get started, I need to let you know that nothing we say here can be taken as personal advice. We always recommend you engage the services of an appropriate and experienced professional. Our guest today is Martin North, and for those of you who don't know Martin, he is the founder of Digital Finance Analytics, a boutique research analysis consulting firm who specialises in offering insight into the dynamics of the mortgage, lending, savings, payments, and superannuation sectors. He also curates a YouTube channel, Walk the World, where he covers finance and property news with a distinctly Australian flavour and possibly a UK flavour now. Martin can fill us in on that shortly. In addition, he is a founding director of Asbestos Awareness Australia, a registered charity which was established with his late wife, Jill, in 2021. Now, we had a discussion with him on the dangers of asbestos in our housing back in episode 218, and I really recommend that you pause this now, bookmark that episode, and come back here right away to discuss what we're going to discuss today. Thank you so much for joining us today, Martin. It is always great to catch up with you. Great to be back on, and uh, lots happening in the housing market, uh, both in the UK and indeed in Australia. Well, it is, and you have uh, moved to the UK. And in fact, I'm not sure we've interviewed you since you've been back there. I know we've talked, but I don't think we've had you on the podcast. So, you know, you're at the coalface of the mortgage belt uh, as you regularly survey property owners, and you've been doing that in Australia for many years, and now you're doing it in the UK. I guess be keen to understand how you would sum up the current situation around affordability, but also, I guess, are there any similarities? Are there differences in the two markets? Yeah, it's interesting because the uh, surveys in Australia have been running since 2001 and we've been tracking there the you know, the rise and fall and rise of uh, property and uh, particularly the question of affordability. And certainly in Australia, affordability is as short as it's ever been. In fact, CBA published a report just last week showing that um, if you take the average house price and two times the average income, um, and then apply those two together. The numbers are adverse, as adverse as they've ever been, particularly in the major markets of Sydney and Melbourne, but uh, pretty, pretty bad all over the place. Now, that is, of course, a long-term trend, and we can talk a little bit about some of the things that have actually led to that. But interestingly, I've been running some similar analysis in the UK, and the surveys have been running for a few months, so it's not yet uh, you know, the full definitive historical series that I had in Australia, but we're seeing very similar things. So what's interesting is that the parallels between the two markets are remarkable insofar that in each case, we saw lending standards ease back as interest rates were cut. And of course, the COVID incident um, helped to drive extra stimulus. So households had considerable savings buffers and uh, a lot of that went into buying property. So house prices in both markets rose. And then interest rates started to rise because of the battle against inflation. Borrowing power has been reduced. And housing affordability is as bad in the UK as it is in Australia. And um, interestingly, the savings buffers that both uh, sets of households had in both countries are now being eroded quite quickly. So what we're seeing is effectively a sharp pivot in people's ability to get into the housing market. In fact, in the UK, property prices are easing now. Not dramatically, but they're easing. In Australia, of course, until now, they've tended to continue to rise, although the most recent data from CoreLogic shows that, in fact, there's a little bit of a pivot in Sydney and Melbourne, and in some cases now property prices are falling. And by the way, those averages mask. Interestingly, in Australia, it's unit prices that have gone nowhere and have been falling away, actually, for quite some time. It's houses, it's standalone houses, where 
all the action is. It's a similar thing in the UK too. So again, when you actually start talking about the housing market, you have to go granularly, you have to look at the individual areas, types of property, all of those things. And you, you and I both know that when you go granular, you see some quite different dynamics. But overall, the, the, the unfortunate story is that affordability is really, really difficult in both markets. Now, we'll talk sort of coming up about sort of why we have seen rising prices in the face of that, um, but also, and also I guess how immigration may play into that. But what's interesting to me is that when I look at the Australian property market, we understand that uh, property really dominates everything. You know, the, the share market is effectively dominated by our banks. Uh, mortgage, the mortgage books effectively dominate the bank's balance sheets. Uh, construction industry is, I think, our largest employer in this country. So there are just so many things. And in fact, the actual asset class itself is worth more than and significantly more than something like 30, 30% more than a combined asset value of commercial property, superannuation funds, and the share market combined. So with that all in play, I, I, when we often talk about the Australian property market being unique, it's because of a lot of those big factors that, that drive it and obviously uh, make it in a way too big to fail, as, as has been said by many people. However, how is the UK structured? Is it similar or fundamentally different? No, it's very, very different, actually. So if you look at the share of lending in Australia, so the banks, you know, the, their, their balance sheets are predominantly housing related. You know, it's probably mm. close to 65 to 70% of the total book the banks hold and of course we've got four major lenders in australia um a few minor players and then the non-bank sector but it's dominated by by four players in the uk the proportion of lending that the banks have done for housing has gone up but it's nowhere near as large a proportion it's under half of the um the typical uh, portfolio of uh, of lending um, the economy is broader based in terms of um, industry and uh, and other things. So it's it's not such an acute point in terms of the economic momentum. It's still very important. But the, the, the other observation in the UK is that you've basically got a huge gradient between London and the southeast, right. where a lot of people live, a lot of international purchases come. So property price dynamics in, let's say, London are very much akin to, say, Sydney. Right. But if you come out into the regions, I mean, I'm down in the southwest in a place called Bath, and there, that's a hot spot because it's a very attractive, um, you know, city to want to live in, and it's it's a great part of the world. I've got, you know, countryside just um, literally uh, 100 yards out of the front door here. But if you go away from those areas and away from the coasts, and if you go north, then property price gradients are still significantly lower, and therefore affordability is quite quite different. So that's the first point. The second point is in terms of the penetration of housing lending relative to other types of lending, it's very di very different. So so there are some remarkable differences, but the trends in terms of house prices, price to income ratios, et cetera, et cetera, are very much the same. The other thing that's happened in the UK is that three or four years ago, they tightened lending standards so they didn't allow banks to loan at loan-to-value ratios as high as in Australia. And, and so they've tended to want to sort of get a little bit of a, a sort of a gradient in terms of the, the, the lending that's done. And they also put more barriers into the investment sector. So about 15% of lending is for investment, whereas, of course, it's, um, it's been up to 30, 33% in Australia. So the investment sector is, is, is just not such a big element. Um, although, again... Do they have the same issues with rental uh, vacancies that we have? Yes. I was going right. to say, um, <laughs> the, what's interesting, uh, as a result of that, there are less um, investors in the property sector. So the supply of rental property has degraded dramatically. That means that rentals have gone up very, very fast. So it's a very similar story in the rental sector in the UK compared with um, with Australia. And in fact, if you look at the um, stress data that I've got, again, it's it's the same in Australia as, as in the UK now. More people in the rental sector have real cash flow issues and are, are very, very much stressed. So 
Some of those differences in terms of the control of the investment sector, they removed some tax incentives as well for, for investors, has meant that many investors have now stepped away. Um, final point, on the migration issue, they just reported in the UK that there was more than 700,000 people that came into the UK over the last year. That's the highest, highest level of um, migration in net net migration into the UK ever. Right now, interestingly, in Australia, of course, we've had more than five hundred, maybe closer to five hundred and fifty thousand. Again, another record. So, in both markets, the migration story is now a critical part of the property story because what happens is when migrants come in, quite often they initially go into the rental sector. And then some of them will subsequently buy. And so that's putting a lot of pressure on rentals. So in both uh, markets, rentals are up. In fact, in Australia, if you look from COVID to now, rentals are up at least 30% new rentals in terms of cost. So that's huge. And in my surveys in Australia, we've got um, well over 70% now of those in the rental sector with cash flow issues. My modeling is it's early days in the UK, but it's close to similar in the UK too. So it, the, now the rental sector is a huge issue. And so my, my view is the migration story is a critical part of the housing affordability story. And that's because of the supply demand dynamics. And it starts in the rental sector, but then it trips over into the purchases. Because in both areas, what we're seeing is some of those migrants are quite well cashed up. And so what they're tending to do is to is to buy into, into the markets. Although interestingly, in my surveys, those particular segments are also some of the most stressed in the mortgage area as well. So when they're so buying in, they're often buying in at relatively high loan to value ratios. So I think that the, the key takeout here is despite the difference of dynamics in the two markets, the migration story is one of the most critical elements to understand when it comes to what's happening with housing dynamics. So with that migration, it's quite interesting because we've been hearing a number of sort of stories, whether it's anecdotal or whether there's some data to back this up, I'm not quite sure, that uh, a lot of these immigrants, and cause we obviously, as you mentioned, the record number of immigrants, both to Australia and the UK, you've got immigrants coming that can't find a rental, and if they are cashed up, we've been hearing that they've been buying property, but also I've seen quite a lot of mortgage brokers uh, pitching on LinkedIn that you don't need to be a permanent resident to buy a property in Australia at the moment. So there's there's some requirements that have been relaxed there. So is that contributing, I guess, in a material way to rising prices in, the, in that these we've had record numbers of migration and then you've got probably an inflated number or inflated proportion of those that would be buying sooner rather than they otherwise would have had they been able to find rental accommodation. Well, there's no doubt about that. Certainly in the uh, surveys, I, I, I um, have a particular segment that I look at, which are you know, those, those first-generation migrants. And it's clear that what's happening is that because of the lack of supply in the rental sector, you're dead right. A lot of people are actually going and purchasing. So if you look at some particular areas, and I, I, I just sort of you know, pick, pick on, on one or two, but if you look at Point Cook and areas around that in Melbourne, right, that's that's seeing a huge influx of first-generation migrants. And so they're buying a lot of property there. And um, again, quite a few of them are buying with um, you know significant mortgages. Um, but it's definitely putting a lot of demand into those particular areas. And interestingly, some of the areas that they're buying into are areas where there's already existing mortgage stress. Right. And so what you're seeing is quite a lot of, um, you know, built, so people are, are buying and selling in those areas. And a lot of people who are actually selling are people who've bought, say, in 2019 when interest rates are really low and are finding it really tough to, to keep going. So that's supporting the markets in those areas. And it, it's not uniform, of course, in terms of where people are actually wanting to buy um Looking at some of the the ethnic mixes, you know, there are particular areas that seem particularly attractive to some of those uh, first generation migrants. Um, the other point there is that if you are looking at the in the uh, rental sector, same story. There are particular areas where some of those migrants want to live, but in those areas, again, the prices for rental properties are quite 
um, extreme. Although what we are seeing is quite a lot of multi-family occupation, interestingly, right. when people first come into the country. So, um, it, it, and it's it's one of the dynamics that I'm seeing uh, that some of the that the new people have come in have a different expectation in terms of property. You know, so there'll be multiple families in one place, and in some cases, what you also find is that they then basically, um, you know, have if you look at a, a particular property, it might have had um, you know three bedrooms and what have you, but they, they end up with five or six bedrooms, and, and so they rejig the property to provide more accommodation for more people. So that's actually another factor in the mix of uh, of this dynamic situation that, that that's going on. So my 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 view is that this migration issue is a huge element in the exclusion of existing Australians buying in some of these areas because they're being outbid. Mm -hmm. And potentially renting as well. Um, yes. So I know that, you know, with COVID, the average household size shrank because people hated disorder. I don't want to share and be locked in with, with yep. you know, flatmates. And now, of course, uh, circumstances are forcing those um, average household sizes to start rising again. And I guess if you're from a an ethnic group that is very used to living in multi-generational housing, then I guess that that's sort of a natural state. And I like, you know, us Anglo-Saxons that like to keep everyone very, very separate. So tell me, what's your view on the inflation story? And, you know, is what's happening in the UK, again, is it similar or different to what's happening here? Yeah, and the inflation stories are interesting. So in the UK, inflation rose dramatically and uh, the uh, the... Bank of England lifted rates a little bit more quickly than the RBA, and uh, inflation is now coming down. But a lot of the coming down is thanks to what's called the base effect. So a year ago, energy costs in, in the UK were extremely high, thanks partly to what's happening in Ukraine and the price of gas and things. Now, those very significant rises a year ago have dropped out, and so inflation's coming down. But in the UK, real wage growth, in other words, inflation-adjusted wage growth is now positive. So what we're seeing in the UK is that a lot of people are now seeing their wages, and you know, wages growth was 8% at one stage, um, which means that essentially people are just tipping over. And in fact, there are recent announcements in the UK from um, the Prime Minister who promised to halve inflation, said, see, inflation's coming down, and uh, you know, people are actually now crossed the Rubicon, as it were, and things are improving. Now, I think it's a bit early to say that. I think it's mostly base effects. But in Australia, um, the inflation story was different. Now, of course, the last quarterly inflation number was up from where it was previously, again, thanks to the base effects, because that basically took out some of the earlier and added some of it later. And that was including things like fuel, rent, and, um, of course, the gas price, which is driving um, the cost of electricity. So... The latest monthly ones, which have just come out, was down a bit, so that might be a, a forward sign. But the RBA last month lifted rates in Australia, whereas the Bank of England hasn't lifted for a little while, and the expectation now is that the Bank of England won't lift again. So I think Australia is actually slightly behind the story on inflation at the moment. The other point, of course, is that the RBA has left rates lower, you know, four point something relative to the Bank of England, which is at five point something. So there's a gap in terms of the two interest rate settings. And some economists are saying, well, you can't expect inflation to get under control in Australia unless interest rates are higher. Now, I think probably the RBA will try and keep rates where they are rather than actually um, take them up again, but they might be forced to. Um, so that's an interesting thing. But the other observation is in Australia, real wages growth is still negative. So there's been no improvement after inflation for most people in terms of their incomes. And in fact, incomes have been static in real terms in Australia for nearly a decade now. So one of the factors in all of this issue of affordability is that in real terms, people are actually having you know less disposable income. And the other factor, just to which I measure, of course, is what I call the disposable income, the ratio of disposable income to mortgage or rental payments. And that's gone up dramatically. So there are many people now in Australia with um, disposable incomes where they're paying 
35, 45, or even sometimes 55 to 60% of their monthly disposable income, so after-tax income, just to find somewhere to live. Now, in the UK, it's, it's high, but it's not that high. So I think the story of inflation, therefore, is that Australia is a bit behind. And in fact, there was a report recently that showed that in, in some measures, the impacts of inflation are more severe in Australia relative to other countries. And that we're slower, therefore, there's probably more of an overhang to come in terms of interest rates. And now the RBA is saying, of course, that they don't expect inflation to be back within target until 2025. In the UK, they're saying it could be a bit sooner than that, unless, of course, we get another external shock, like another war or something. You know, I looked at the last um, inflation figures and I and I, 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 I still I scratch my head because I think, how can rising interest rates on mortgage holders really bring down inflation when... And the bank data came out saying the people spending money and, you know, all the discretionary stuff are not the mortgage holders, you know, yep. and you've got gas prices, you've got uh, fuel prices, you've got all those macro uh, forces that have got nothing to do with individuals. I mean, th these are not discretionary items. So you, you have to pay for fuel in your car, particularly if you work, et cetera, et cetera. So, um, and I look, I'm not an economist clearly, but like seriously, is do interest rates really work or is it just that they just do it because that's the only thing they can do and ultimately inflation will come down anyway from other from other reasons? Yeah, I think that's a very important point. Um, inflation is a really, sorry, interest rates on, on inflation is a really blunt instrument. Yeah. Right? And what it's doing is it's impacting specific segments of, the, of households much more adversely than others. So yeah. if you've got a big mortgage then you are being badly hit. If you're in the rental sector, you're being badly hit. And we did explain that migration is one of the reasons why why, why prices are where they are. Yeah. Um, yeah, the central banks, I, and you know, I have to say, I'm not very impressed with central banks and central bankers and the way they think, because of course they do have this inflation target. And by the way, that 2% inflation target was plucked out of thin air some <laughs> years ago. There's there's no real logic to why 2% is good and 3% is not or, or whatever it is, right? But it, Basically, they thought, well, a bit of inflationary pressure is quite good because, of course, it reduces the, the, the debt level and over the medium term. So that's why they picked 2%. So there's no logic to it. And what they're doing is trying to get, quote, supply and demand back in balance, which makes it harder for people to spend. But, of course, not everybody's in the same boat. And yeah. again, more information from CBA showed recently that, in fact, if you're younger, then your ability to spend has been curtailed dramatically not least because of the housing costs and everything else. Whereas if you are older and you've effectively got no mortgage and uh, you know, you're living on your own property, you're still spending and you've still got savings buffers. So but you're what you've off, got because the money well, in the bank's actually delivering a return. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, you can get five, six percent on term deposits now, which is pretty amazing, you know, relative yeah. to what it was. So what's happening is that a proportion of the population is being really badly squeezed by, I think, rather poor central bank policy. I think they took rates too low. They panicked through COVID. Then they left rates too low, and then they lifted them too quickly. And I suspect that what you're going to find is that some of those inflationary effects, which were originally supply chain related, thanks to COVID and then thanks to um, the Ukraine situation, mm -hmm. are shaking themselves out. But unfortunately, now, if you look at the data in Australia, about half of the inflationary pressures are not due to supply chain disruptions. They're due to poor policy. So right. the first poor policy is high migration leading to very high rentals, high demand for property, the high gas price, because, of course, you know, we, we're paying in Australia. Essentially, our electricity prices are driven off the marginal gas price. The marginal gas price is driven off the world price. And despite the fact that we actually are creating a lot of uh, gas out of the ground in Australia and goes into LNG, we are paying that marginal price. So there are a number of policy settings that really have actually, frankly, wired in significant inflationary pressures into the local economy. And what that means is that the instrument of interest rates is extremely blunt. 
And that might mean that interest rates will have to stay higher for longer, um, which means, of course, that more people are going to be caught in this affordability trap. Um, if you look at the average ability to borrow for a set level of income, it's down about 40% now from where it was when interest rates were ultra low because of the way that the banks do the calculations, which means that some people are finding it really, really hard now to get mortgages. Yeah. But it also means that there are other people who are not in any sense under the same pressure. And so they are still spending freely. And that means, of course, from a supply-demand dynamic, the RBA says, huh, well, people are still spending. That means we probably need to lift interest rates even more. So it's a really, really blunt instrument. And frankly, I have believed for some time that the central bank philosophies have actually been part of the problem rather than part of the solution. Yeah, I've, everything I look to, it points me in the same direction. I've sort of got two questions from that. One is that in the face of all this, we've had a market recovery. And even though uh, you mentioned earlier that CoreLogic data shows that, that there's a softening, and there's certainly that that rate of growth has, has softened the last few months, um, and in some places now it's it's sort of falling again. But we have recovered from, you know, we've had all those gains in 21. We've now recovered from the losses in 22. Um, this is quite unusual in the face of this and despite the fact that affordability is impact impacting uh you know our first home buyers and and upgraders and basically those that already have a mortgage it's impacting me i'm watching my buffer you know evaporate too in front of my eyes um prices are still rising it can't just be immigrants because immigrants uh, as you mentioned earlier it's not whole they don't just come out and fan themselves evenly across the whole country even they're, they're certainly pockets that they will gravitate towards um, so how do you how do you explain that? So that's sort of the first question, and then this leading into that, I'm I'm sure you're probably going to talk about some sort of intergenerational wealth transfer because you've got these people that are benefiting from high inflation, and you know, and we we're starting to hear and see a lot of uh, you know first home buyers. Well, the bank of mum and dad is the fifth largest bank in the country, so clearly that money is starting to make its way back into the property market. So is that another main reason why we've had a market recovery, do you think? Well, there's, there's a bunch, bunch of reasons. The, the first is that um, still in Australia, property and owning property is, is still a huge drive for many people. There's still a huge aspiration to, to own property. And, uh, you know, that aspiration has, has been there forever. But it's still there. Yeah. And it's interesting that if you look at when people now are able to buy their first property, it's about 10 years later than it was a couple of, a couple of um, decades ago. And that's because you have to save harder and longer because prices are so big. So, you know, the, the typical first-time buyer used to be in their mid-20s. Now the typical first-time buyer is in the, in the mid-30s. The second is a lot of people are getting now help from it's not so much the bank of mum and dad now, it's the family bank. What I mean by that is we're seeing huge trends now where, in fact, it's grandparents who've got huge equity yeah. in their property who are pulling equity out and giving it to the grandkids. We're seeing um, siblings provide funding to help brothers and sisters buy in, into the market. So it, the, the whole bank of mum and dad thing has broadened. Wow. Anybody who's sitting on an equity pool, and of course with property prices rising again, those equity pools are rising in some cases. So we're seeing a lot of people now pulling some of their equity out and passing it down. And frankly, if you have not got intergenerational wealth, it's very hard for first-time buyers to be able to save enough, even with the higher interest rates, to get into the market. So that's a huge factor. And in fact, I've been tracking that for some time. The bank of mum and dad wobbled a bit when prices fell. But now it's back in huge force. And the average amount that people are actually getting from the bank of mum and dad or the family bank, as I prefer to call it these days, um, is harder than it's ever been. So that, that, what that's is a it? big factor. Well, you know, the average, and it's, it, it, it's a bit of a, it varies, but more than 110,000 would be the average um, cash injection. In some cases, it's a lot more than that, um, depending on where you buy and what you buy. But it's a, it's a big number. It means that people can actually get below the 20% deposit. Um, which means that if, uh, sorry, 80% LVR, which means yeah, you know, yeah. more than 20% deposit, which means basically you get a better interest rate and uh, perhaps you can even avoid, avoid 
lenders mortgage insurance, which as we've discussed before, only protects the bank, doesn't protect the borrower at all. So those, yeah. those are some of the fa- factors in play. Um, the other point I'd make though, is if you look at price dynamics, it's certainly not uniform. Now I sold my property in Thoreau, um, you know, back in February, March. And I've been watching prices there quite keenly, and they're still falling. Yeah. So what's interesting is that if you look at some areas closer into the cities, prices are very much higher than they were, but it's not true in some regional areas. And so some of the reversal from the COVID story, so you know, prices in the area that I was in went up by more than 35% in some of those regional areas. And I could see that the, the, the sort of the trend was beginning to come down. So there was a quite keen incentive in my view to sort of sell and get out because I could I could crystallize some of the extra that, that, that had been created. Um, prices are still low. So, you know, the, the point again, it goes back to this point, you've got to go granular, got to go local, you've got to understand what, what's going on. The other point, if you look at units, as I said earlier on, units and houses doing very different things. So I'm looking at North Rider um, units, for example, in some of the high-rise areas there, they're still down. They're down 30% yeah. from where they were on the peak. They haven't recovered at all. Yeah. So a lot of property investors who actually piled in to investing in property some time ago are still seeing their capital values falling. They're seeing the mortgage that they have rising because of the interest rate rises. And whilst they can put rents up a bit, there's a ceiling as to how much rents can go up because people can't afford to pay. So one of the things we are seeing is a greater listing now of some of those units, ex-investment properties. Um, so it's a really muddy, complex picture. But what people want are standalone houses in good areas with good plots, and they're prepared to pay top dollar plus. And so that's one of the reasons why we're seeing very strong property price growth in some of those areas. So again, you have to go granular to really understand what's going on. I'm on a personal mission to help more people make better property decisions. And you can find out all about what I'm working on at veronicamorgan.com.au. And there you'll find resources for first-home buyers, details about my buyer's agent mentoring program, access to suburb help for investors, or if you're looking to buy your dream home or an investment property in Sydney's inner west, eastern suburbs, or lower North Shore, you can connect with my team at Good Deeds Property Buyers. If you're thinking about buying your first home, upgrading to a new one, or purchasing an investment property anywhere in Australia, we would love to carefully guide you through this journey and importantly, get the finance right. Please reach out via our website, wealthful.com.au. Don't forget that you can download our free full or forecaster report. Which experts can you trust to get it right? Theelephantintheroom.com.au. That's the thing, isn't it? I mean, in well-located areas, land is valuable. And if you've got a house on a block of land, you're not sharing that block of land with however many other unit dwellers, then then that's that's a scarce resource. It is interesting. And look, I tracked uh, a lot of uh, Melbourne unit resales and also Brisbane unit resales over the last boom, you know, back at the end of the teens. And people were losing money in the face of rising. The rest of the market's rising and, and yet resales, uh, something like 60% of resales in Melbourne over that period of time were sold at a loss. That's huge. And it's just incredible. It's massively newsworthy. And I know that there were lots of headlines about it and all the rest of it, settlement risk, et cetera, et cetera. But it's still, you get the very fact is that there's, you know, North Ride, a lot of that was sold after then. You know what I mean? Why do people think they're immune for that? But um it's a it's a common refrain in those areas of mass development, but at the same time, I think to myself, okay, but we've got a housing crisis, so surely their vacancy rates must be, you know, sub one percent. Um, surely, and I know that obviously the rents cannot rise, like you say, there's a ceiling on on rents, and they are much more constrained by incomes than uh, property pro- purchasing prices. Yeah. Um, those investors, though. If they can't deal with that loss, like, I mean, at the end of the day, if that's their only asset, they potentially can't sell because to sell means that they have to potentially go bankrupt. So that's, that's uh, you know, I guess that's a reason if someone can find a way to hold on to a property, uh, I mean, that's a real, that's really being trapped, isn't it? Well, yeah, it is, but I should also highlight the rising strata fees 
this is the other factor that's driving a lot of property investors to sell because hmm. a lot of those, um, particularly the high-rise construction from some years ago, was poorly constructed. And so there's a lot of maintenance being required on relatively new property. And in yeah. some cases, it's actually the strata fees and the rise in strata fees, which is the nail in the coffin. Because, you know, probably investors always assume that the capital appreciation would be sufficiently strong to be able to actually make a profit relatively quickly and get out if they need to. Now they're stuck insofar that you've got this ongoing cash flow problem with strata and those things. The, the rentals, you can't put them up anymore because you, 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 know, you just can't. You just can't find anybody who can afford to to rent so uh certainly you know and i have my ind individual conversations with people still i've spoken to quite a few property investors who are really confused about what to do because they bought when interest rates were ultra low you know sub two percent yeah. mortgages um sometimes interest only sometimes sometimes not the prospect was capital appreciation in some cases even some of the developers promised a certain level of return for the first couple of years and then, of course, that sure. fell away. So, so suddenly now they've got this, um, you know, open market problem. And so, you're damned if you do, damned if you don't. What is what is the right story? And then the question is, of course, what will turn around the dynamics here? You're right. There's you know lack of supply of, of property, but there seems to be some limits, particularly in the unit sector, as to how property prices behave. And I think we may have said in previous shows, you know. When you buy an investment property, you need to be very cautious about the types of property that you buy because not all investment properties behave. No, they do not. And in fact, one of my favourite reports, everybody who listens to this will know, that called Logic's Pain and Gain Report, it shows that A, units are have greater, uh, more of a, a loss-making asset than houses. I mean, and this is aggregate, of course. You Once again, we always say you've got to get granular to understand really what's going on. But also, more investors lose money um, in property than owner-occupiers. And so that sort of flies in the face of this idea that investors know what they're doing and are, are using the numbers and making sensible, logical decisions. It's like they're not because most investors don't know anything about property, and yet they're borrowing so much money to buy one. Well, one of the interesting observations is when I speak to people, I talk to them about the cash flows. A lot of people have never done the calculations on the cash mm. flows. So what's what's the money going out? What's the money coming in? The expectation is, well, I might lose a bit on cash flow, but I'm going to gain on capital appreciation. And then you say, okay, well, have you looked at the trends over the last five years of properties in your area? No. Well, you probably should because, you know, the chances are, when you do the, the numbers and you know, my, my sort of calculations, about 60% of property investors are underwater. Um, so they're actually sitting there with a leaky leaky boat. And remember, folks, you can get 5% plus on term deposits at the moment. It's a very different investment market from two years ago. It, it very much is. But the thing is with <coughs> property investment is that obviously leverage is your supercharge, right? But if you don't buy good assets, all you're doing is supercharging your way to a very, very terrible financial situation. Now, what do you, what do you think? And, and I'm always careful saying this because we, we, you know, every year we release a report called the Fuller Forecast Report. So I'm, I'm going to ask you what you think about prices into the new year. But I want to, I want to let you know that I'm not asking for predictions. I'm, I'm curious to talk to you about your scenarios, right? But I'm also more more interested in do you believe prices will be stable or do you believe that things such as listing numbers will completely outweigh by demand um, and there, there will be subsequent uh, price falls? And if you do, is that location specific? I mean, you, you do know where there are areas of where there's more mortgage stress and so I guess that's a little bit of a long, convoluted way of asking you a question. But I, I'm not asking you for a prediction. I'm asking you, what do you think will happen to prices? Which direction? Let's go directional here. So I think it's a good way to think about it. And I run multiple scenarios. And you know, pe people sh who have been following what I do know that I've always said, look, there are scenarios where property prices could drop. So if you look at it in absolute economic terms and think about income to price of properties, we're 40% still over where we should be. So there is always a downside risk, right? But is but it 40% just the standard, the standard figure? 
Well, it, it's not it's not moved it's not it moved that much, to... but it but 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 you know, but, but but the point is that's not my most likely scenario, right? Because the other scenario says if you continue with high migration, so significant demand, and if the RBA doesn't lift rates, holds them, but then eases them back, we could still see some upward momentum, particularly in houses, particularly in areas close to uh, the major centres. I think some of the regional areas are going to struggle significantly more, and I think units could 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 slide back. But my base case at the moment is pretty much property prices will go sideways for at least the next 12 to 18 months because I believe the RBA may have to lift once more or may not be able to take rates down because inflation is still pretty stubborn. Um, mm. I also think there's a really important point about whether the migration rate is going to continue. So there's a bit more noise and reporting about migration, interestingly, I noticed. And, you know, the question is, is the setting we've currently got with ultra high migration higher than we've ever had you know typically we were 200 250,000 now we're double that plus yeah. is that sustainable and so it may be that the government will actually ease back some of the settings and they're talking about doing some of those things and what have you so we might actually see slightly less demand than we've had but i, I want to underscore local demand people aspiring to get into the property market is hugely strong there's about um two-thirds of those in the rental sector who aspire to get in to buy property they still want to and you know about half of those have concrete plans over the next couple of years to try and get into the market so so at the bottom end i suspect prices could be strong enough and some of those will be buying distressed properties in the high stressed areas the top end of the market and at the older end of the market there are some down traders, so people who are sitting on quite big equity pools who are now quite keen to extract some of that equity, sell and buy something smaller. And so that's another dynamic. So maybe we're going to see some slightly different dynamics at the top end of the market than the bottom end of the market, which is a long convoluted way of saying, I don't see a massive crash coming anytime soon. It's more about sideways or slightly up. And I think the slightly up is going to be more concentrated in houses close in to some of those more central areas, the more you know aspiring properties. Um, but I would, again, say some units, some of those more stressed areas, the dynamics are going to be in probably harder faults and more people actually getting difficulty. So in some of those areas, prices could fall a bit. Now, in recent years, I've been marvelling, I guess, at the way in which the property market in this country has been bouncing around. So we used to have, uh, and and look, always got to be careful talking about Australian property markets. You all know there is no such thing. But yeah. let's, you know, if I talk Sydney and Melbourne, but, you know, Brisbane has done its own thing. It's done a different thing. But if we look at generally the market in a really broad sense, uh, we used to see these long cycles you know, I, I interviewed um, the very first few episodes of the um, of the podcast. It was a veteran uh, property economist whose name escapes me, but he's well and truly retired now. And he said to me, he was adamant that, that the property market always has 12-year cycles. And I was like, I'm not sure about that even then. So that's five years ago. Since then, we've seen almost an annual cycle. You know, if you look at uh, – and obviously we had COVID messed around, but – if you look at the five-year uh, growth, say let's look at Sydney and Melbourne for a moment. It's the two biggest markets. You had pretty much a five-year growth period from 2012 to 2017. Then you had a two-year slump, and then things started recovering at the tail end of 2019. Then COVID hit, then nobody really knew what was happening, and then we started seeing growth again. 2021 went crazy. 22 went down again. 23 has gone up again. So it's got this sort of zigzag. We've gone from having these nice long and and, and I know, and I've looked back in 30, 40 years data, it hasn't exactly been 12 years of lovely, long, gentle cycles, but we certainly have seen longer cycles, longer periods of upturn, less dramatic downturns mostly, um, and that's sort of what we got used to. I, I remember 2007, 2000, uh, 2006, 2007, or 2004, 2005, that period of time was really quite flat in Sydney. So you talk about going sideways uh, potentially into 2024. So we've been looking that's 17 years or more, 
almost 10 years since, sorry, almost 20 years since the last time that happened. Are you in agreement with me there? Are you observing the same thing? There's much more volatility in the property market than there used to be. Do you think that that is, um, that's just what's going to happen now? Do you think that it's possible to have a sideways year? I know you've um, modelled it, but it, it, given what's yeah, been happening it, recently, yeah. that's all. I think that's a, that's a good point. And look, it's worth just reflecting. Interest rates came down over the last few years. You know, we, we had the um, global financial crisis, the RBA messed around with rates. But ultimately, after that, until the, um, the COVID story where rates were cut to billion, we had a gentle drift down in rates. And that allowed um, people to sort of more or less get into the, into the market if they needed to, wanted to. And of course, as rates dropped, the borrowing power increased. That allowed people to be able to borrow more and that chased prices higher. So those underpinnings helped to explain some of the dynamics. We saw. Now, of course, there were interventions. So the investment sector got a shock when they changed some of the regulatory um, you know, guidance there so that investors couldn't just um, keep, keep investing. And so we, what we saw, well, my point is, there were interventions from the RBA, interventions from the government, and the thing that I'm seeing more than ever before is more interventions from yeah. government, right? First home buyer grants. I mean, look at what happened, um, was it last week when Queensland doubled the, the first mm. owner grant? We are going to see, I think, more active intervention from government, um, which means that it's very hard to sort of talk about long-term trends because basically, you know, they throw another thing at the, you know, at the property market because it's a political battleground rather than economic battleground. And so you cannot remove the politicization of property these days because it's such a large part of the economy. And, you know, I, I always refer to Australian economy as houses and holes, right? So the the biggest momentum is from digging stuff out of the ground and selling it overseas and the housing construction cycle. Well, it goes back to what we were talking at the head of this conversation around really how important uh, pro residential property is to this economy. Yeah, it's too big to fail. It's yeah. too big to fail. So therefore, governments will intervene. Therefore, you have got this this bouncing around. You know, it's very difficult to yes. just let the market do what the market could would no, do the market under its is, own. The, the market is not a market in, in a normal sense of the words. The market is an adjusted market with a lot of intervention. Plus, of course, you've got the failure of builders and the lack of supply of new property. Um, if you look at the new starts, the number of new starts is way below where it needs to be just mm. to accommodate the migrants that we discussed earlier on. So yeah. the supply side is is a real problem. And by the way, on the national basis, Australia is still a very attractive place for people to, to want to come to and, and live, you know, if you think of some of the other if you can find somewhere to live. Around, around the world, if you can. And that's part of the issue. So people, you know, struggle with that. So the, the, basically, it's a, it's a long way of saying it's really hard to know the, the dynamics, but I think we're going to continue to see more government intervention. I believe that the financial stability risks if property prices fell are so huge that the RBA and APRA in particular will do whatever they need to do to keep the property market up. Um, it's such a huge part of the economy, and that means that housing affordability is going to continue to be a major factor, which is you know playing into it. Um, unless we get a global recession or some other external shock, the downside scenario that I always keep in the back of my mind, that, you know, long term, we're way, way over where we should be. The chances are we will still see that not, not happen simply because of the fact that the government knows that property is too big to fail and they will do whatever they need to do and want to do and can do to try and actually keep that momentum at a certain set level because of the financial stability risks being so big if they actually let it slip. Another intervention at the moment is... Um zoning changes yeah so and and obviously the new south wales state government is being quite active in this space and i know other governments are as well and there is a huge amount of pressure obviously because we need to get homes built you know i may not think they're great investments for people you may not but at the end of the day we need roofs over people's heads what are your thoughts on that i mean it's going to take a long time like you said before we've got builders going broke and you've got the high cost of materials Zoning changes obviously makes a site more profitable, right? So, is that going to encourage more people to build? I mean, what do you what do you think about 
that material change also to the makeup of of, uh, of our council areas. Well, I, I've had the opportunity to track a number of um, particular locations where over the last 20 years or so, they changed some of the planning rules and built up. And they're com- you know, those, those areas are completely different from where they were even 10 years ago. And it, what's fascinating is that, you know, you, you would have previously had, you know, standalone houses. Now you've got uh, mostly high-rise. The quality and nature of living in those areas is very different. Now, what's interesting is that there are some, particularly migrants, who are very comfortable to live in that style of accommodation because they're used to it. You know, yeah. it's been done in other places too. So that's going to put a very interesting imprint on some of those areas in terms of the the, the types of people who will be happy to, to live in those areas. And it may be solving one problem, but it may be creating another one in, in terms of will they will the quality of those units that are constructed be sufficiently high to be able to actually you know, last 20, 30, 40 years. Like I said earlier on, there's a lot of strata fees going up because the costs of maintaining those are actually pretty high relative to where people thought they'd be. And the, the, fu- the other point there is that the build to rent sector is also, of course, a big factor here. And those big construction companies are huge advocates for going yeah. up going up high and building small and building cheap to try and actually turn a profit. So to my mind, a lot of this is being driven more by the economics of the building and construction sector than by dealing with the, you know, the, the key factor, which is actually where do people want to live, what types of product that they want to live in. And I worry that the footprint, if you look, we'll look back in 20 or 30 years, is we're going to see areas, particularly in and around the major cities, that are going to be pretty different from where they are now. And I suspect that's going to perhaps be more adverse than people think, particularly things like more people driving around, you know, higher volume of infrastructure required, but not necessarily delivered. So I think it's fraught with issues. Yeah, I think if it's planned well, it can actually improve an area. Uh, and I think too, interestingly enough, we've uh, got a building commissioner in New South Wales now. It must have been in place for about five years, David. Um, yeah. Uh, Chandler. Thank you. Mental blank then. We tried to get him back on the podcast. We've had him on once. So David Chandler is, is forced to be reckoned with and he and he really has made some some incredible changes and headway. There's some legacy problems though with those buildings that, that were completed prior to him taking over the role and, and making yep. changes. So that's sort of one thing in looking forward, you would hope that that would have a positive impact on the quality. Um, the other thing too, the build to rent sector, if these large construction companies, I mean, Mervac, for argument's sake, is in this in this space. And if they're going to retain ownership of these these buildings, then it's in their interests to actually have a, a more of a quality uh, construction. So you would hope that in, I guess, it depends who's building it, who's developing it, and who's ultimately going to own it. Um, but also, you know, I know that uh, in the commercial construction space. The handover of an entire building to a client is very different to when you're you're building a block of apartments and handing over a hundred individual units to a hundred individual buyers who didn't commission you to build the thing in the first place and actually is going to not going to withhold the final payment if if you've got defects or things haven't gone uh, been finished. So so there is a difference, I guess, in the way uh, our residential property is constructed, um, and so it will be interesting, I guess, to see how that pans out long term, you know, with those that new sector, the, the built to rent sector, but also this increase in in zoning. My big question with that is that like a developer gets a win for profit. If basically the zoning means you go, you can add another three or four stories. Well that that they didn't factor that in when they bought that site. I just want to know if that's going to be shared in some way, you know, with the council, with the with to contribute to infrastructure, to contribute in some way to the amenity of the area. But um, I don't know whether that's being discussed or not, to be honest. I'm not sure if you're aware of any of that. Uh, it's tending not to be. And uh, basically, the big operators are looking at this as a way of maximising their returns. Um, I'd also say that uh, I am not convinced necessarily that the quality of construction will be much higher because the cost of materials has risen dramatically from where it was. And whilst um, I applaud what Chandler's doing in terms of, you know, trying to get some of those standards and, and, and wanting better checks and what have you, 
um, the legacy over the last 20 years is only just coming home to roost now. So we mm. won't know until 20 years down the track, frankly, whether the quality of construction has, has been improved. I, I have to say I'm quite skeptical. Just on the asbestos thing, we're still importing some materials with asbestos in them even now for really? new property. Yes. Oh, my God. Um, so the sheeting, um, if it comes from places like China, can contain a proportion of asbestos and still come into the country without actually um, you know, any issues at all. Now, I worry about that because I, I worry that even some of the modern construction potentially can lead to problems down the track. And, of course, you know, we've discussed asbestos previously. Asbestos is still a live problem yeah. in many properties. And unfortunately, we haven't stamped it out sufficiently and therefore the risk is that more people ultimately will, will be exposed. So there's a bunch of questions that I've got in terms of quality of construction, quality of um, building standards, and I come back to quality of life, right? Yeah. So if you go up to North Ride and walk around some of those areas that were built some years ago, I have to say it's pretty sterile. I haven't been there for a long time, so I can't comment yep. on that. Um, we're at that time, I'm going to ask you for a property dumbo, but I'm going to I'm going to give one first. Hopefully, you've got one for us. I'm going to give one, and this is actually about asbestos. I um, looked at a property with a client a couple of weeks ago, and very pretty little cottage in in inner west suburb in Sydney. And he, he's an investor, and you know, from the streets, a nice streets, a street that I like. It had real lane access with parking, and it's got lots of lots of things that I really love about it. The house next door, one on one side, it didn't look particularly flash, you know, looked a bit sad and unrenovated. You think, oh, that one day somebody will renovate that. But as we walked through the house, we could see that through the side windows and the little side French doors and whatever, that the about the the wall for the house next door, that house, um, sitting right on what I presume is the boundary. And so there's no fence because that the house is, looks like it's built on the boundary. And I'm looking at the the sheeting on the walls. And I'm thinking it's pretty old, uh, definitely before 1984, and also in pretty poor condition, like not painted, and so therefore what you call uh, friable, right? Um, was it unfriable? No, well, the other. Anyway, friable. Friable is when the little fibres can go floating through the air. It comes off, yeah. As we go out to the back and we're standing on the back deck and I'm looking at the back of that house, I could see you know, big chunks taken out of, of various, you know, the eaves, the, um, they even look like it had asbestos guttering. Um, like it just, uh, and and really hadn't been painted in decades because there just was barely any paint on it. And, and I just said, this is an absolute no. It, it doesn't matter how good this house is. It doesn't matter how good this street is. It doesn't matter that it's got um, real land access. I don't even like standing here talking to you. You know, it's an absolute no. Now, somebody bought it, and that's a dumbo because you have zero control over that per that neighbour not maintaining their home. And every time you go outside and have a little Barbie out the back, you know that that's that's a danger zone. And it was uh, somebody bought it, so that's a property dumbo for me. Yeah, the asbestos story is, is horrendous. And just, you know, I have to keep underscoring this because, because my wife died from mesothelioma, which was caused by asbestos. Yeah. You only need one exposure on yeah. one occasion. And there are more than 20 types of asbestos around the place. And uh, about one third of properties in Australia have asbestos within them. So I always say you've got to assume that there's asbestos there rather than there's not asbestos there. You can't take risks with it, um, you know, and all of this story, oh, it's an old, it's an old story. It's it's disappearing. It's you know, no, unfortunately, there's a lot of stuff around. And as you quite rightly say, look next door too. Look yeah. look around the area because if there's asbestos in the next door place, you can't do anything about it. And but it could yeah. still reach you. And so, yeah, absolute Dumbo. Yeah. Now, have you got a Dumbo for us? <laughs> well, well, I, well, I have a, but but not. Um, I bought my property in the UK online. Yes, I know. No. You've told me this before. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Not, hopefully not this story, but you have told me that. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's interesting <laughs> because I knew the area and I knew I knew the property. I'd seen it 20, 10 years ago or whatever. So so it's quite interesting. Um, retrospectively, you know, I came here and, and moved in and had a few things done. I, I got a structural survey. Uh, and I'm pleased to say that um, 
It wasn't a Dumbo move in this particular circumstance because I'm very happy with the property I bought. But I've had a, quite a few people talk to me about, well, you know, your experience of buying online was was great. So, you know, yeah. maybe we should do the same. And I'm, I'm saying, no, 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 you've got to understand there were some very special circumstances, right? I knew the area really well. I knew the property really well because I'd walked past a few years ago and thought, if, if that comes on the market, I'm, I'm going to buy it. Um, I do, unfortunately, and I've had it quite recently, speak with my one-on-ones with people who use the online viewing as the main viewing for the property and then committing to buy. And unfortunately, I've had no less than three people regret that subsequent. Why? Because you didn't look around the neighborhood. They didn't actually do enough due diligence to be able to understand what they were actually buying. And they didn't bother to get a structural survey, which is what I did as well, um, to understand what the dynamics of the property was. So, so my Dumbo warning is, don't be a Dumbo and buy online unless you've really done other things to make sure that you're buying what you think you're buying and that you've got um, you know, the right ticks in the boxes because it's still very, very easy to get allured by you know the, the, the Zoom trip around or the video trip around, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so be cautious with online buying. It's such a good point. For example, the, the Dumbo I just gave you, if you bought that online, you would not have seen that house next door. And even if you did the Google, the Google uh, satellite and all that sort of stuff, you wouldn't have noticed that. Another thing you don't get when you buy online, you can't smell the property. And sometimes <laughs> smells are very important, very important. Yes. Another one is ceiling heights. There's, in fact, I wrote a blog some time ago about all the things that you don't you do not pick up if you buy a site unseen uh, and online. So it's a good point, and I love the fact that you've got to qualify that because yours, you, yours is a good story. I love your story, um, but you don't want people following it because it's a, there's a key factor there that you knew the property. <laughs> yeah, and the other point is you can't hear. You can't hear about the noise yes. in the surrounding area, right? And you can't go back and say, "What is it quiet at night or is it noisy at night?" Right. Now, again, I knew the area really well. But you can play you can play with the volume on videos. I've known I knew somebody that actually bought an apartment sight unseen and when she moved from a different state, you know, got the, may, maybe had a property manager inspect it for her, you know, that, that's that's a good trend. Moved in and went, "Oh my god, the road noise is just incessant." You know, didn't hear any of that in the video. Sorry, what uh, were you going to yeah. say? <laughs> Well, I was, going to, I was going to say exactly that, that, you know, that there are things you should do. And what about, you know, not noise at odd times, noise at, at weekends and those sorts of things too, because um, you need to get, get to know the area. And I, I, I sometimes say to, to people who I speak with is, how many times did you visit the property? Mm. And, and I, for when how long? did you visit the property? How long were you there? Um, because those, those sorts of things are, are really, really telling. And uh, then the final point, and of course, check the maps. So flood maps, the the fire maps, or those sorts of things, because there there there's sources of information. But unfortunately, again, what I find is that quite often people go onto the real estate site, they see the video, they look at the pictures, they look at maybe a, do a, a quick Google, but that's all. And and yeah, because of the fact that in some cases people are desperate to buy, and caveat at the moment a lot of first-time buyers are really desperate to buy a lot of their first-time buyers aren't doing the work aren't doing the due diligence and you can be a real dumbo as a result yeah absolutely look we teach in your first home buyer guide uh, we actually teach our students the due diligence process all the things that we do in our buyers agency businesses and in fact in my buyers agency business because i'm i'm also mentoring new buyers agents as well and teaching them how to do this, I've actually pulled apart, my team helped me pull apart our entire due diligence process. We're up to about 84 different touch points. Now, yeah. it sounds ridiculous and some of them are small and some of them aren't applicable to every property, uh, you know, like we don't have to do the strata stuff for houses for argument's sake. But the reality is there is a lot of things that need to be checked off uh, if you're buying a property. And if you don't know that there are 84 things that you should be at least thinking about, then you need help. You need to learn how to do it or you need to go and pay someone who will do it and not all buyers agents even know how to do it. So it's a really, really important understanding exactly all the stuff that needs to be checked. 
Martin, it's been a great chat. It's always great to chat to you. Thank you so much. Uh, we're recording this at the very end of November, so I'm going to wish you a very happy Christmas and um, hopefully it snows and it's all pretty for you. <laughs> I'm looking forward to see what the dogs, because I brought the dogs over from Australia, how they deal with the snow. So I'm going to be recording their first snow point. I suspect, oh, it's a bit cold. <laughs> Interesting <gorgeous>. to see. <laughs> Did you buy the boots? A little like boots. <laughs> well, maybe maybe they need little boots. I'm not sure. I haven't seen many dogs with boots on, but uh, so far the squirrels and the um, the local um, um, countryside has been great for them. So hopefully this winter will be fine too. Enjoyed speaking with you as always, and um, I'm sure we'll pick up the conversation either on this channel or on my channel down the track. Absolutely, looking forward to coming back on. Thank you so much, Barton. If you have a question that you'd like us to answer in an upcoming Q&A episode, you can send us a voicemail or written question via the website, theelephantintheroom.com.au, or you can email us directly at questions at theelephantintheroom.com.au. If you like what you're hearing, please share this episode with others you feel would benefit. And while you're at it, why not leave us an iTunes review? Five stars would be great. I know that sounds a bit cringy, but we have it on good authority that every review helps make it easier for other people to find out about us and hear what our amazing guests have to say.